Well, I can't help you. I've been Snapchatting a lot of poetry to people. It's Friday, October the 27th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News contributor and empowered EU citizen, and with me today is my fellow Dutch News contributor and artisan scribbler Molly Quell. Our regular third wheel, Paul Peters, master's student in civil engineering, has excused himself claiming exam fatigue, even though his exams haven't actually started. Yeah, and despite the fact that uh, he's super busy with exams, he was off uh, in Amsterdam being uh, at, the, at a Twitter book launch because he was being featured in this book. Well, you have to admire his commitment to Twitter at, a, at such a difficult and uh, di- busy time for him. It's very true. Yeah, it's, it's very good true. Good to see he's got his priorities straight, Paul. So uh, you got your passport back then, Gordon? I did. I got a brand new passport in the post yeah, yesterday morning, which is great. It only took about two weeks to come, which is amazingly efficient that's, for the UK. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. so well unto them. Impressive. Uh, not quite as good as my old passport. My old passport was issued in Glasgow, which I'm sentimentally attached to, whereas this one just says uh, it's issued by the passport office. Oh, so that's, must... that's less fun. But you've not been on Twitter and, uh, so much this week, uh, and I gather it's because you've been uh, busy uh, discovering the joy of writing by hand. Yes, I've been, uh, I've been handwriting all of my tweets out in fancy calligraphy style uh-huh. and just keeping them to myself, as a true hipster should. No, someone gave me a fancy calligraphy pen for my, uh, for my birthday, and I have discovered that it is amazing, and mm-hmm. I now don't want to write with anything else, which is a slight problem because it's one of these, like, dip pens, so I have to take the pen and, like, the little pot of ink and, like, a cup of water and, <laughs> like, some paper towels and also write on, like, newspaper, on top of newspaper because the ink gets everywhere. So, it's so uh, yeah. Have you been banned from writing the shopping list now? Because I imagine that takes you about half an hour. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Niels was like, we have an app for this. Could you, could you use the app? <laughs> this week, we'll bring you news of gridlock on the roads, a novel way to stop the rain leaking through your roof, a man who went a long way to disrupt a dolphin demonstration, and Max Verstappen's ongoing case of road rage. In the discussion, we'll bring you up to speed on who's who in the new Dutch government. As we mentioned, the new government was officially sworn in this week after a 225-day negotiating marathon the 16 ministers and 8 junior ministers from the four coalition parties started work by dressing up in tailcoats and swearing an oath in front of the king. They basically have to declare that they haven't offered any bribes to get the job, they'll be loyal to the king and uphold the constitution and carry out their duties to the best of their ability. After that, they posed for the traditional school photograph with the king on the palace steps. And we'll take a closer look at the new cabinet members later in our discussion. Do we have to talk about serious things or can I ask the only question that I care about? Which is? What was Hugo de Jong wearing on his feet? On his feet. <laughs> Hugo de Jong, who's a new health minister, is already making waves with his shoes. He, um, he actually took two pairs of shoes today. He had a pair of shoes for the ceremony, which were a kind of sort of... Uh, some multicolored freak reptile pattern sort of uh, design, I think you call it. Maybe I'm not an expert, but uh, you're not a you're not a fashion expert, Gordon. <laughs> Very not. No, um, I try my hardest. But and then he had, but then for the scene on the palace steps, he changed into another pair of shoes, which were kind of white shoes with blue roses on them, and uh, which made a striking contrast, especially as he was standing right next to the king, which means that he had his feet on the red carpet with his white and blue shoes. They were quite the, uh, the standout they were shoes. quite the item. So, uh, other than the shoes, any, uh, any standout moments? No, not really. I mean, the Dutch media always get really excited about this because they've been spending the last seven months standing outside you know, doors in the parliament building and not being allowed in. So finally they get inside. The cameras are allowed in now. This is a new thing from the, the last government. and um, But actually it's a pretty dry ceremony where basically they just... Um, stand up and um, they either swear before almighty God or they give a sort of secular oath where they declare that they will uh, do their duties and the only real 
interesting thing I find is seeing which ministers decide to uh, swear by God and which go for the sort of non-religious option. It's about 50-50 this time. And is it mostly the Christian Union, the CDR, that do pro-God and the other groups do the secular oath? Yeah, exactly. The, the two Christian parties all abide by God and the Liberals generally go for the secular version, although there are a couple of um, surprises on that side where a couple of Faith for Day ministers um, were more traditional and also Sigrid Kach of D66. Oh, that's so, an interesting uh, turn of events. And also that uh, actually the day started with um, the king having to accept Mark Rutter's resignation as prime minister. Okay, that that seems awkward because then uh, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I, yeah. I presume he then just has to immediately reappoint him as prime minister. Exactly, yeah, because by the form, the, the, the previous government has to officially resign before the new one can take office. So Rutter on Wednesday submitted his resignation to the king. The king had to go away and think about it overnight and then come back on Thursday morning and accept and then immediately reappoint him as prime minister. So basically Rutter had to go to the palace to plead with the king to give him his old job back. Is there any uh, other political news? I think uh, I saw something on Twitter about Wilders. Well, uh, Geertwild has been back in court, um, where he spends a lot of his time. I can't imagine why. <laughs> but he started his appeal against conviction. Uh, this was his case last year, uh, for where he was found guilty of making comments that were demeaning and insulting to the Moroccan population, and therefore he was guilty of uh, inciting discrimination. This is the uh, infamous Minder Minder Minder. Yeah, this is the Minder Minder speech um, in, uh, after the local elections in 2014, right. uh, where he asked a room full of people, uh, do you want f- more or fewer Moroccans? And obviously they've been all stage-managed, and they all chanted fewer, fewer. Um, and he's began his appeal by asked, demanding that the chairman of the judges, a woman called uh, Shiana Khakir, steps aside and he said he should stand down because she chaired a foundation that awarded a prize to a left-wing student activist and Wilders claimed that meant that she couldn't be impartial in his case. That's a bit of a that's a bit of a stretch, I think. Uh, yeah, it's kind of standard behaviour for Wilders. Yeah. In, in almost every trial, he's he starts by he, he tries he questions the impartiality of the judges. And in his first trial, which was back in two thousand and eleven, uh, he succeeded in having a judge removed uh, from the panel. Uh, he tried it again the last trial, and that, he wasn't successful. And this time. Um, he asked the judge to step down. She said she wouldn't. And then he said, because he does have the right to actually uh, convene a formal hearing where another court panel has to decide whether the judge is fit to hear the case. But he said he wasn't going to do that. But he would just be kind of keeping an eye on her. But it's part of his strategy. That's what he wants to do. He wants to politicise the judiciary. After his last trial, he released a video blog where, where he called the judges who heard his case um, barking mad. And he, he wants to set up this... He wants to set up this polarisation so that uh, you can be sure that, uh, at least in the arena of social media, this appeal hearing will be as much a trial of the judge as it is a trial of Geert Wilders. I feel bad for her. Someone it's should a... send her a, some flowers or maybe some flower pattern shoes. Yeah, some fancy shoes. Mm. I, think that, I think she deserves that. After a New York Times report last week revealing decades-long allegations of sexual abuse by U.S. movie producer Harvey Weinstein, a movement to share stories of sexual abuse and harassment started online with the hashtag MeToo. The hashtag spread quickly, and former television presenter Annika Bakker revealed that she believes she'd lost a job after turning down the sexual advances of a superior, while swimmer Ella Hutton said that she had been abused by her swim coach when she was a teenager. It wasn't the only women who were reporting their stories. Writer and broadcaster Yella brandt revealed that he was raped when he was first starting in television. A survey by broadcaster NOS found that men and women have vastly different opinions about what constitutes harassment. Women, unsurprisingly, indicated that the touching of breasts or buttocks is always unacceptable, while some men said that this could be permissible. So Gordon, you wrote a pretty good uh, blog post about this, which we'll link to in the liner notes. Oh, thanks. Yeah, on that last point, I still find it hard to get my head around uh, as a man when you would think that touching the breasts or buttocks of a colleague or somebody would 
was it was acceptable. Well, some percentage of of men in this this survey seemed to think that it was uh, fine, whereas women universally said that it was uh, not acceptable. In yeah. news that does not surprise me at all. No, indeed, I suppose it underlines what the whole yeah you know, what the whole kind of hashtag has revealed that there's you know that, that there's a real gap in communication and perception, I think, by men and women of uh, how much this goes on, and it's not so much about the individual instance, I think, because a, a few commentators have said, uh, you know, you should be, you, know, you shouldn't believe everything you hear or whatever, but I think it's, it's just how prevalent this is and how some men just seem to do this routinely to every woman, woman that they that they encounter. And uh, I think, you know, as a man, I found that quite shocking, actually. Yeah, as a woman, I did not find any of this shocking. Um, I think that women have known for a long time that, uh, you know, men in predatory, pre- predatory men, particularly those who are in uh, more senior positions, are, are quite likely to take advantage of the power dynamics that they have and uh, sort of behave however they want. Um, and that there's long been, you know, sort of whisper networks um, of, of women in, in workplaces or industries sort of warning each other about, you know, making sure you keep the door open when you have a meeting with this guy or, you know, not staying late at work with such and such and that kind of thing um, in an effort to, uh, yeah, make sure that you're not the uh, the victim of abuse because you don't have a good, clear way to, uh, to to protect yourself otherwise. I mean, women who do complain about these things are very often dismissed. I mean, I have heard people say before, oh, he didn't mean it. He's a really nice guy. It wasn't, you know, intentional. Um, and, you know, their concerns are uh, not taken seriously if, if they even are believed, um, which very often they're not. And uh, yeah, so this is the only way that women have had to protect themselves. Yeah, I think generally it is it's very much, I think, an awareness thing that men have tended to, you know, um, to believe the excuses of men who say, oh, you know, I was, I was just being friendly or I was getting a bit over familiar, I was a bit drunk or whatever. And we've not been aware, really, that, that, that there's been, you know, most of us, I think, you know, occasionally overstep the mark, but don't do it as a matter of habit or aren't consciously... You know, treating women uh, this way, but 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 there are there are men who do, who do sort of push the boundaries constantly and feel that they're entitled to yeah treat women uh, as um, sex objects in the workplace and uh, yeah maybe this is going to lead to a better conversation and a more yeah and and at least you know when these concerns are raised they'll actually be taken seriously by people who are in the position to do something about them. Yeah, I uh, I hope so. If you wanted to protect your roof from the rain, you probably wouldn't think of using a condom, for all kinds of reasons. But that's just what a team of Dutch students did to win a recycling competition in Rotterdam. Challenged to find a use for all the things people aren't supposed to flush down the toilet bowl, like condoms and tampons and sanitary towels, they came up with the idea of compacting all the waste products to make a waterproof lining for green roofs. Green roofs take in a lot of moisture, and sanitary products absorb a lot of moisture, but the advantage is they don't gain much weight, which makes them the perfect material to line the roof of your house, your flat, or, you guessed it, condominium. Oh, this is the worst pun ever, Gordon. You just, it's the you best just, pun. That's so terrible. I spent a week preparing it. I know, it. I know. And I'm, I've been trying to brace myself for this moment since I knew it was coming. Yeah. But it's a pretty smart solution. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, it's, a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty challenging uh, concept. I think it was a, it was a pretty neat thing that they, they came up with to do. Yeah. And uh, I would not want to live in a house with this roof if the roof leaks. Not if the roof leaks, but otherwise, you know, as long as it keeps you dry. Yeah. Which is its general purpose anyway. Yeah. It would, uh, yeah, it would be a good thing. But uh, as long as you don't think too much about what's in your roof. It's a little bit like eating croquette or haggis. Right. You know, to, don't, to, to just do it. Don't think about it. Don't think about yeah. it. 
For reasons that are unclear to me, since I dislike driving and steadfastly refuse to own a car or even convert my license into one that is valid in the Netherlands, I'm covering traffic this week. First up in the news that is a reminder of why driving is terrible, a report by the country's Institute for Transport Policy Analysis reported this week that traffic congestion is on the rise. Traffic jams were up 1.7% in 2017, and the Institute predicts they will rise another 1.2% in 2018. At least some of this increase is due to the ever-growing number of taxis in big cities. According to the taxi drivers' lobby, K&V, the number of taxi firms in the country has nearly doubled since 2015. Most are single-person operations, which is a direct result of the loosening of taxi regulations in 2015, and many are driving for ride-sharing companies like Uber. Lighting your car on fire could be a response to the frustration of sitting behind a taxi in Amsterdam, as, your car, as car fires are also up this year. Though they didn't speculate what the cause was, the National Insurance Association, VVV, reported that the car fires have hit a five-year high with 2,808 reported incidents so far in 2017. Most, it turns out, are deliberately set and not the result of electrical malfunctions. Since lighting cars on fire may reduce traffic congestion but is terrible for the environment, the city of Arnhem is looking for more green solution to traffic pollution, so they are banning all diesel cars manufactured before 2004 from their city center. But there is some good traffic-related news. However, it is bad gravity-related news. You're more likely to die from a fall than a traffic accident. According to the National Statistics Office, CBS, there are 10.6 fatal falls per day in the country compared to the 656 traffic-related deaths per year. Most of these deaths are amongst the elderly. So, Gordon, were you late this morning because of the traffic? Uh, no, because I wasn't late this morning. I know. I was shocked. I was, I was <laughs> like, throwing my clothes on when you rang the doorbell because you were never on time. I know, so I was uh, totally unprepared for this. I didn't this. know where to look. Yeah, it, it, was, was, uh, it was a mess. Having seen this question in the script, yeah. I thought uh, I would uh, get you back by turning up on time. By turning up on time. Okay, so in the future, if we want you to turn up on time, we just need to write it into the script exactly. that you'll be late. Okay. Uh, but uh, does this mean the solution here is just to keep elderly people in cars at all times for their own safety? I I think so, yes. Perhaps they can uh, drive for Uber to, to uh, supplement their uh, ever-dwindling pensions. Speaking of traffic and falls, Max Verstappen was feeling pretty sore this week after he fell off the podium at the US Grand Prix. The 20-year-old Formula One hope was penalised for an overtaking manoeuvre on Kimi Raikkonen on the final lap because he briefly left the track. We had a great race, but with these stupid decisions you kill the sport, fumed Verstappen afterwards. He also suggested that fans should boycott next year's racing protest, and at a press conference on Thursday he was still going on about it. It was especially harsh, given he'd worked his way up from 16th place on the starting grid after his Red Bull team was penalised for breaching engine regulations. So he's mad because he broke the rules and they called him on it? He broke the rules and it was a very technical infraction. He said everyone else was doing it in the race and he was the only one that got penalised. Is that true? I mean, I presume I... that they record these things and you could tell. I think yeah, the stewards looked at it afterwards, and they decided that he'd 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 gone he'd run just slightly off the track. It was, it was a very bold overtaking maneuver at the time. Everyone raved about it, including his uh, his team manager. And and then after the race, he got dot five seconds, which meant that basically Raikkonen re overtook him, sort of you know, in the in in the standings. And there was some good uh, uh, football related news for the Dutch ladies this week, wasn't yes. there, Gordon? Not for the Dutch men's team, who continue to be atrocious. But Lika Martins has been named FIFA's Women's Player of the Year. Someone called Cristiano Ronaldo picked up the men's award. I don't know. I've never heard of that guy. Who is he? He plays for some Spanish team. Oh, okay. Yeah. It caps a pretty good year for Martins, who was the undisputed star of the Dutch team that won the Women's European Championships this summer. She scored three goals, and she was awarded the Golden Ball for the tournament's best player. 
And in July, she was signed by Barcelona, where she earned a reported €200,000 a year. Which is about what Cristiano Ronaldo earns in a day, It's I what think. Lionel Messi earns in three days, yeah. apparently. And uh, there was also some uh, Anna Frank controversy in football this week, I, as I understand. This was in Italy, where fans of the Italian club Lazio put up stickers of Anna Frank wearing the colours of their rivals Roma all over their stadium. The, the two clubs share a stadium. Uh, Italy's hardcore fans are very far right and uh, 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 hail back to the glory days of Mussolini and uh, for them it's an insult to call each other Jews so they use pictures of Anna Frank to taunt each other. It's been going on for some years but this particular episode because it was quite prominent sparked a huge outrage. Uh, Italy's Prime Minister called the stickers unacceptable. Lazio's president said he'd organised trips for fans to Auschwitz to educate them about the Holocaust. Um, and Italian clubs uh, last weekend held minute silences before games and they some of them held readings from Anna Frank's diary which uh, some of the fans spoiled a little by singing songs and giving fascist salutes. What is wrong with people? This is a dreadful thing. Yeah. This is a dreadful thing, and these people should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah. So there were too many good animal stories to narrow it down to just one this week, so we've got an animal news roundup next. First, the sad news. The illegal killing of protected bird species is a serious issue in some parts of the Netherlands, according to BirdLife International. The provinces of Friesland, Zeeland, and North Brabant account for 90% of illegal bird deaths. The group thinks that there are 1,200 such deaths in the country each year, but that number could be as high as 3,100. Amsterdam has the opposite problem, only with rats. Sightings of rats are up 25% this year, according to the city's health service. And it isn't only Amsterdam. In Rotterdam, rat sightings have doubled. The Amsterdam City Council is blaming residents who feed the ducks and the birds, saying that the abundance of food has led to the increase in population. And in ridiculous animal news, the so-called vegan streaker has been arrested protesting a dolphin show in Japan. Dutch animal rights activist Peter Janssen jumped into a pool at Adventure World in the nude, holding a sign which protests an annual slaughter of dolphins in Japan. This isn't his first incident. He's also protested bullfights and released mink from a fur farm. We'll be taking a closer look at the new government's ministerial lineup after this word from our sponsors. Here in Holland is a new podcast for internationals living in the Netherlands. It is a twice-weekly podcast which focuses on the stories of internationals and expats. The podcast covers topics from manners to chance encounters, and they interview the Dutch and non-Dutch alike to get their insights, advice and stories, ranging from the funny to the sad. Here in Holland is currently creating an entirely crowdsourced podcast and welcomes your submissions. You can send your stories via WhatsApp. Find more information on their website, www.hereinholland.com. The podcast is available in iTunes and other podcasting apps. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. Mark Rutte's third cabinet officially started work this week with the traditional swearing-in ceremony and group photograph with the king. The new coalition is made up of four parties with a wafer-thin majority and includes a mix of familiar faces and new names. Rutter has also had to forgo his preference for small governments to accommodate all the other partners, so the new cabinet is made up of 16 ministers. There are also eight junior ministers, or staatssekretarissen. Now that the full lineup is known, we thought we'd talk you through the names so you can tell your Wopke Hoekstra's from your Krabbe houses. 
For our listeners, Gordon, how many ministers were there in the Rotatue government? Uh, there were 13. Okay, so, we're, so we're, we're a bit up from that. A huh? few more, but given he's got four parties instead of two, it's not a huge expansion. Yeah. So what are the challenges that Rutte is looking at here? Well, he's uh, prime minister for the third time, and it's uh, his first cabinet was um, a centre-right coalition that was supported by uh, Philip Wilders, which fell apart after 18 months. In his second cabinet, he kind of was more of a kind of war cabinet almost, because it was right in the middle of a recession, and they had to go through some austerity measures that were quite punishing for some people and that was a coalition also with the Labour Party so it was kind of a coalition where the two parties had to meet in the sort of ideological middle uh, this time I think he's got to be more of a kind of conciliator because he's got to hold together four parties with quite different visions of, of how to run things on the one hand you've got better economic circumstances the economy's growing and we're looking at a budget surplus in a couple of years but it's, it's going to be more difficult I think just to keep uh, discipline especially as there's only a one seat majority in both houses of parliament so if one MP starts tearing things up or even switches to another party, then it's going to get complicated. And I would imagine that um, how badly the PVDA did in the last election is a bit of a, a warning to the other junior parties. They don't want that to be their fate. So yeah. I can imagine that that uh, is also a bit of a, a play as well. Yeah, exactly. They'll be very, very wary of avoiding the fate of Labour who got swallowed up and carried away on this centre-right austerity package of measures. In the end, they got sort of spat out at the end of it and they lost three quarters of their seats. The three junior parties will, make, will be anxious to make sure that they don't lose touch with their voter base. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, who's in the cabinet. So let, first up, let's go with who are the new faces? Who have we not seen before? Okay, so last week we mentioned uh, Sikri Kach of uh, D66, who's one half of the foreign affairs team. She's um, teaming up with Halber Zylstra of the Fefe Day, whose foreign affairs credentials are a little more um, opaque. Yeah, Kach is the, uh, the, uh, the, the one with the experience. She's kind uh. of the heavyweight, uh, <laughs> the intellectual heavyweight of the, the two, I think it's fair to say. She's a very experienced diplomat. Uh, she worked with the UN, but she's also been uh, criticised straight away or come under a lot of scrutiny because her partner is Palestinian yeah. and, uh, and there's immediately been questions raised about will she be able to look objectively about the uh, Israel-Palestinian conflict Well, I mean, the Dutch play such a large role in negotiating that conflict that Indeed. I can see how important that is <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, a curious thing, there is also this odd obsession in the media with the Israel-Palestinian conflict even though the Dutch have almost no involvement in it at all and there are other strategic uh, issues that are really more of a priority you know, like Russia, like Trump well, you know, the U.S. has appointed a, a really, really talented diplomat, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump Jr., to, yeah. uh, to deal with this from uh, from the U.S. Yeah. side. So probably anyone that the Dutch throws at them would do better than what the Americans have done. Yeah. I think just like a, a dead bird from Brabant <laughs> would do a better job than Donald Trump Jr. They'll build a lot of stuff and then not pay their employees as a, as a diplomatic move. Indeed, yeah. But they'll put their name on everything. Of course. So, yeah. so who else is uh, who else is new? Uh, very new face is junior finance minister Menno Snell. He's not just new to government, but he's new to the D66 party. He wasn't a party member until last week when he got the call to say, do you want to be a D66 minister? Okay. Uh, so Alexander Pechtold basically uh, yeah, had to sort out his membership. But I'd like to think he actually signed his membership form personally yeah so. of course of course so does this mean that like any of us could just get a call at any time to yeah, be a minister no, okay. I've got my phone on permanently just permanently waiting call just the, waiting for that yeah, call what, what, party what cabinet ladies. do you think you would be appointed to probably a shoe cabinet the shoe yeah, uh, the, the fashion run by, run fashion by, correspondence yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but Snell just get back to him is arriving from the IMF he's one of several members of the cabinet who've come from some kind of financial administration background so it's quite a technocratic uh, Dutch cabinet in that respect. He'll play second fiddle to Vopke Hoekstra of the Christian 
Democrats, uh, one of the great names in cabinet. Um, one of the great Dutch names that's going on my list <laughs> of great Dutch names. And uh, Snell is going to have quite a baptism of fire because his, it's his job to oversee the tax reforms and modernise the tax service. I can imagine that'll make uh, him very popular. Indeed, which every Dutch uh, government tries to do and fails at. Of course. So aside from uh, Hoekstra, who has is a totally unpronounceable Dutch name. <laughs> this is my this is my favourite name, I think, in the cabinet. <laughs> this is Ferdinand Krapperhaus. Yes, this uh, name is ridiculous. Yeah, he's not even the first Ferdinand Krapperhaus in um, the Dutch government. Good lord. His, his father, who was also called Ferdinand Krapperhaus, was junior finance minister in the 1960s. How is his dad did not realise <laughs> that the name Ferdinand Krapperhaus was a terrible name and, oh, like, did not pass this along <laughs> to his son? I think he's uh, he's about the fifth generation of uh, Krapperhauses who are called Ferdinand. Of course. But this, he was the guy that was responsible for introducing the VAT tax, right? Yeah, or the, he, the value-added tax in the Netherlands. Yeah, he yeah. introduced the Dutch version of VAT, known as BTV, yeah, which, which you all have to fill in the forms on every quarter. Right. It's a right pain. It, so it it's is. his fault. It's his so fault, so yeah. we can be mad at him. Um, Krapperhaus Jr. is ironically the most senior member of the cabinet. He's 57. Oh, okay. And he's going to be justice minister. He is justice minister. Um, okay. He was previously professor of European law at Maastricht University. Well, uh, congratulations to him on his, I guess, promotion? I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, so Snell's from the IMF, Krapperhaus is from Maastricht, so you don't have to have been a member of parliament to be in the cabinet, apparently. Uh, no, you don't have to be elected to parliament at, at any time. In the last cabinet, Lord of Akasa, he arrived from Amsterdam City Council, where he'd been an alderman, so he wasn't an elected official there either. But and he's not the only one. The cabinet now also has another Amsterdam City Council member, right? Yeah. Yeah, Kaiser Ollenkron, who is now a deputy prime minister. She was also an Amsterdam alderman, and he's, she's been acting mayor of Amsterdam recently, obviously when Eberhard van der Laan was terminally ill and then sadly, of course, died last month. Uh, she also knows Matt Rutter very well because she was head of the civil service team in his department. Yeah, uh, I hear that they previously. were uh, quite close, um, despite coming from, from different parties. Yeah, indeed. So it's not unusual for ministers uh, not to come from parliament. In fact, Lord of Agassa stood for parliament for the first time this year oh, wow. as Labour leader there because in the meantime he'd been elected leader of his party so, and he's now an MP. It's a very, uh, it's an interesting system we've got going on here. Indeed. Um, and then there's Education Minister Ari Slob. Uh, he, Which is he... also a terrible Dutch name. <laughs> now, only a name you could only have in the Netherlands. Of yeah. course. Um, he's a Christian uni. He was leader of the Christian uni. In, in, he was in Parliament for 15 years and then he left last year. To, to become, become a teacher, right? Yeah. yeah. He, went to, he went back to into teaching and yeah. uh, became a teacher in Svolle, in Overijssel. Um, and now he's had the call to become Education Minister. Yeah. So there you are. So you work as a teacher for one year and you can and, uh, become be in edu- charge of the entire education system. Seems uh, <laughs> seems like excellent uh, preparation for that. Um, and his deputy is Ingrid van Ingelshoven of uh, D66, who, she is an MP, but only since March. Uh, before that, she was in charge of education at the Hague City Council for okay. seven years. Seems like some uh, relevant prior experience. Yeah, it might be useful. So, so those are some new faces. So uh, so who is left from uh, Rutte Twee, other than Rutte himself? Yeah, Rutte himself, who's always the last man standing. It's uh, because he wears uh, sensible shoes. Indeed. Uh, with uh, probably uh, coordinating socks. Yes, of course. Um, aside from Ritter, uh, there's Sander Decker, who was junior education minister in the last cabinet. He was one of the youngest ministers in uh, Ritter's previous cabinet. Um, he's now a little bit older, and he's minister for legal protection. And what officially. exactly does that mean? Well, the thing is, there's some in some ministries you've got two ministers, um, which officially you can't have. You're supposed to have one person in charge. They've had to sort of make up these kind of secondary titles. He's a justice minister, effectively. He's in the justice department. Okay, sure. But he's, uh, he covers like uh, legal protection, I 
uh, think as well things like the uh, the infamous SlapeNet um, uh, kind of a, a part of his uh, Excellent. portfolio. So we'll be doing a, a, a discussion on SlapeNet at indeed. some point in the future. Yeah, so it'll be um, yeah that'll keep him busy, I think, in the early years. He's one half of the Justice Ministry team with uh, the aforementioned Ferdinand Kupperhaus. Hal Bazalska was leader of the Fefe Days Parliamentary Group, um, and now is uh, going into cabinet. Um, he was also in Rutter's first cabinet, and his successor as uh, parliamentary leader is Klaus Dijkhoff, who's heading the other way. He was a minister before. He was the junior justice minister. And then there's Eric Vibus, who was um, junior finance minister, which is a real poison chalice. He, um, he'll be happy to have cast, uh, to hand that job over, and he's now going to become economic affairs minister, and also is in charge of the climate agenda. It sounds like out of the frying pan into the fire, I think, for yeah. him. And then there's Carlos Houghton, who is um, uh, an MP with the Christian Uni, very experienced. She was the second negotiator um, during the coalition talks. She's agriculture minister. Yeah, her experience is in uh, finance, though. So the mm. agricultural thing was a bit of a, a bit of a question mark. Yeah, people were surprised by that. They? Yeah. But on the other hand, there's a lot of you know um, uh, agriculture is a lot about so sorting out European subsidies yeah. and funding for farmers. So I think her experience will probably come in ha- quite handy. Yeah, and the uh, the Christian Uni is is quite strong in a lot of rural areas. So I guess that makes yeah. a, a bit of sense in that regard. And then there's um, Mona Kaiser with the CDR, who's going to be junior economic affairs minister. She's another MP who's moving into cabinet. So uh, can we discuss my uh, my my favorite MP? Yes, please do. Well, yes. not that he's particularly. <laughs> My favorite MP, but at least his shoes are my yeah. favorite shoes of all of the MPs. So uh, I'm, I'm referring to, of course, Hugo de Young, who's going to be <laughs> the health minister. Yeah, he's uh, and he's coming from Rotterdam, where he was an alderman. And uh, yeah, so apart from, apart from cutting a dash with his shoes, he's also known for quite a controversial plan to um, compulsorily sterilize um, the most vulnerable women in oh, Rotterdam. Oh, Hugo, come on, sorry, buddy. To, sorry, to, yeah, uh, so suddenly your whole picture of him has uh, completely changed. Now <laughs> I need a new. Who else has nice shoes in the cabinet? I need a new favorite minister. This is very controversial. His argument was that that some of the most um, we're talking about people with learning difficulties difficulties and people who basically really struggle to yeah, sort of function socially in their lives. He's saying they should be effectively um, enforced to uh, fit a coil or take some kind of form of contraception so that they can't have children. Great. Now I have to hate your shoes, Hugo. <laughs> I'm mad about this. He's got a junior minister, right? Uh, Bruno Browns, Bruno which Browns. is also a ridiculous name. Indeed. Yeah. Who's been in, he has been in government before, but not for 10 years. Um, and since then, he's been in charge of the uh, Uve Fe, which is the, the jobs agency, agency. Yeah, jobs agency, and also the agency that handles kind of unemployment uh, pay- payments as well. They both got big budgets to, or they're handling big sums of money. De Jonge has got uh, to find ways to spend two billion euros, which has been committed by the last government uh, on improving elderly care, hopefully decreasing fatal falls. Indeed, yeah, and yeah. Uh, making sure that uh, yeah elderly people aren't set on fire in their cars while they're working for Uber. Right. Um, and uh, Browns, on the other hand, has got to save roughly the same amount uh, on things like hospital care and mental health services and community health. And uh, straight away, there's been a lot of um, concern voiced by the opposition parties about those last two, especially things like you know um, nursing care in the home, for example, is uh, something that people who are housebound or uh, or mentally ill depend on a lot. And uh, Lodovic Asser, the Labour leader, has, uh, has already signalled that's going to be one of his main points of concern. There's been some criticism about the uh, lack of diversity in this uh, in this cabinet so uh, what's uh, what's what to have to say about that 
Yes, because although there's four parties, there's um, it's quite a, a narrow mix in terms of things like there's no ethnic diversity really at all. No. It's, it's all uh, white faces. There's also in the proportion of women is uh, just over, it was 10 out of 14 ministers, so 42%, uh, which is actually fewer than in Wilkes' last cabinet. Yeah. Which reflects the fact that there's fewer women in parliament as well yeah. at the last election, that number's going down. That's uh, not particularly good news on the uh, equality front. Um, the Faith of Day particularly have struggled to find women uh, to fill cabinet positions partly because a lot of their high profile female um, ministers have left last time so um, Edith Schippers who was health minister has right. left um, Melanie Schultz who was transport minister she's uh, left politics and there was course, the dust up with Janine Hannes and there was Janine yeah. Hannes who was very much looking an absolute certainty to become uh, to be in cabinet until she had to resign as defence minister a couple yeah. of weeks ago um, and Rutte himself has admitted, actually, uh, I think uh, yesterday or this morning uh, on the radio, that uh, you know, he would have liked to have had more women in his cabinet. So he's kind of conscious that that's uh, a bit of a, a bit of a minus point for him. Um, there's also only one minister who was born outside the Netherlands. That's the uh, junior defence minister, right? Barbara Visser. Yeah, Barbara Visser. And where was she born? She was born in Croatia, okay. but she uh, left at the age of three. We do have um, a, a two-woman team in the defence department, of course, because we mentioned uh, this Christian Democrat Ank Bailefeld is uh, defence minister, um, and probably uh, the, the the main sort of um, uh, flying the flag for diversity is probably Kaisa Onokran because she's from Finnish aristocratic stock originally, and she's also married to another woman. Okay. So uh, so so there's a there's a teeny <laughs> tiny bit of diversity. Yeah, a bit of a rainbow edge to the coalition. Yeah. yeah. So who else is unhappy with the cabinet besides people who think that like we should have more diversity in government? Well, this might shock you terribly, but uh, Heert Wilders. I'm I'm sorry, Heert Wilders is upset with the 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 part. I'm I'm shocked. How on earth could this have happened? Yeah, he's frothing and fuming about. Um, apparently, uh, a lot of the uh, cabinet ministers are symp- too sympathetic towards terrorists. He seems to think, and he's particularly got his sights on Ferdinand Hopperhaus. Is it because he has a slightly foreign-sounding name? Um, yeah, he does sound a bit foreign, doesn't yeah. he? But uh, but mainly because Hopperhaus uh, wrote a blog two years ago where he said that jihadis who'd gone off to fight in Syria um, should uh, should be allowed back, and we should uh, we should actually talk to them and have a debate with them rather than just simply um, send them away and uh, take their passports off them, which doesn't just put him in odds with the builders, um, but also Rutte. Rutte said uh, a few years ago, you might remember, that um, uh, uh, people who go to Syria would be better off dying there. But nevertheless, uh, you know, builders have said uh, that when they have the debate in Parliament next week about the new cabinet, he's going to table a no-confidence motion in um, uh, House in the same way that he, he wants to vote, vote no confidence in his judge as well. So he's big on his no confidence. He's, uh, he doesn't seem to have confidence in a lot of people. Perhaps that's why he's the only actual member of his party. Could be, yeah. Mm. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, Klapperhaus uh, once said that Wilders was uh, not responsible for his actions. Uh, so uh, I think he's uh, he's not going to shy away from a conflict, I think. So that could be quite an interesting uh, head-to-head. Yeah, maybe it'll be an interesting debate next week in the yeah, Parliament. Indeed. So I think that's, uh, that's a pretty good wrap-up of all of the uh, ministers. We'll, of course, link to uh, to all the articles cited in the liner notes if our listeners want to uh, to read more. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to our channel and rate the podcast. That helps new listeners find us. And please share the podcast on your own network. My thanks to Molly Quell. I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back with Palpate. No, we won't, because he's not there next week either. Is he not here next week either? Well, he's threatening to stay away again. What yeah. is this craziness? He's probably got another kind of Twitter social Are network. We, does this together. mean we're hiring for a new podcast co-host, I, I think? think. Uh, we, we, we might need to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. My one isn't on Twitter all the time. My thanks to Molly Quell. I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.